Today I'm going to talk about a subject that I've never talked about on a Sunday morning. It's a subject that is uh, personal to so many of us, probably going to rattle some cages. Let me just ask you to not get pre-offended. Please do not get pre-offended. You have to hear this whole message to understand my heart in what I'm about to say, okay? For some people, this topic is going to be a major, and for some, it's going to be a minor. We have to major on the majors and minor on the minors, and you're going to have to uh, please try to hear my heart in this topic as I talk about what is real communion? What is real communion? Are y'all mad already? In order to answer this question properly, we have to take a look at the original intent of communion as we've all known it and ask ourselves in light of scripture, is what I've been taught and told about communion actually God's design for it? Is there real power in a cup and a cracker during a worship service? Or is it simply communion meditation that has greater significance for me personally instead of us corporately? Today I wanna debunk a few myths concerning communion. Not completely removing the tradition handed down by the early church, but rather making sure we follow what the Father and Jesus originally intended for us as a body when it comes to true communion. For example, you have a lot of different ideologies and theologies and philosophies concerning communion. We have what we know as transubstantiation, basically believing that the cup and the, and the cracker or the bread actually become the body and the blood of Jesus, the Eucharist. We have consubstantiation, which was brought on by the early Lutheran church, which believes that there's a mixture, it's both and the same. It's basically still the cracker and the juice or the wine or the bread, but it actually is also the blood and the body of Christ. Then you have people that believe it's simply symbolic. It's a symbolic act. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance. It's a reminder. It sets up a memorial. It keeps us in constant remembrance of what Jesus did for us. It's more symbolic, whereas for some people, it's, it's actually the body and the blood of Christ. For some people, it has way more meaning and significance for some than it does for others, right? For some people, it's a real supernatural spiritual experience. And for others, it's just a commonplace thing that you do as an act of worship and service. I don't actually believe it's any of those things. And I'm gonna tell you why today. All right? So I'm asking you to listen because I've been asked a lot about why don't we do communion more? And I understand that you know, some people struggle with that, and I'm not anti-cup and cracker. I'm just anti-cup and cracker with the wrong heart. I'm anti-doing it with the wrong motives and intentions. So 
I'm going to define why I believe what I believe from the scriptures for you today. First of all, let's define communion. The actual word communion in the Webster's Dictionary means the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. It's the sharing of consecrated bread and wine in, a Christian, in Christian worship and service. So it's us coming together and sharing our heart, our life, our mindsets, things that we believe, our struggles, our challenges, our feelings. In the Bible, you only see communion a few times, the word communion. You specifically see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. And the word communion is the same word for fellowship, and it's the word koinonia in the Greek. This word means a fellowship, an association, a joint participation in a community. It's a place of contribution, collection, and distribution. Partnerships that benefit one another and the greater community at large. So it's much more than let's take a moment during worship to have a cup, a little swig of grape juice, or we don't serve wine here. Some denominations do, but it's much more than that. It's actually the sharing of intimate thoughts and feelings and relationship with one another. It's koinonia. Biblically defined communion is defined as koinonia. Now to further reiterate this point, let's look at this scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion or koinonia or fellowship or benefactory, the, the things that I benefit from the blood of Christ? The answer is yes. That's a rhetorical question. But notice this part. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the bread is a communion of one another, of the body of Christ. I think we could all agree that we're the body of Christ. So when Jesus broke the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. But we all understand because we're taught repeatedly scripturally that we're also his body, his hands and his feet. And so we also, just as he was broken, we're broken and we become bread for one another. Verse 17, though, for we though many, notice what it says here, are one bread and one body. And we all partake of that one bread. So notice the context. The bread we break is the body of people. We are the bread of his body to one another and all of us are to partake of that bread. Let's say this together. Say the bread bread is a body. The bread is a body. I want to start first by making a few statements. I said this last week. I want to say it again. If we're not giving, we're not living. If we're not giving, we're not living. Giving also requires dying, which in turn brings life, right? So if we're not giving, we're not dying. If we're not dying, we're not giving. They all go hand in hand. The more that I have to give, the more of a sacrifice that I become. Last week, I I reminded you, just have children, just get married, just have coworkers, just do life with people. You're always in this process of having to give or make sacrifices for someone else. And in turn, in that giving, there's a a removing of something in your life for someone else. Now, as we've grown and we've matured, we love to give. Giving brings joy. We don't see necessarily giving as dying. 
But in general, the concept is the same. I'm giving away something of myself as a sacrifice, whether it's my time, my resources, my knowledge, my wisdom, my energy, whatever it is. And all of us are called to be givers and to give away ourselves for our family and our friends and the community at large. This is the power of sacrifice. I've been talking a lot about sacrifice in the Garden of Gethsemane, talking about crushed incense. There's no olive oil without the pressing in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means wine press. There's no burning of incense in the sense of prayer and worship without a crushing and a fire first. So sacrifice requires fire. Sacrifice requires death. Sacrifice requires the giving of ourselves, especially when I don't want to. It's easy when I want to. It's not a sacrifice to really to play with my kids and to go do, you know, go to do fun things at the beach or play with the animals, whatever it is that we do. The sacrifice really comes when I don't want to do it. The sacrifice really comes when it hurts. The sacrifice really comes in the cutting and the crushing and the pressing. This is the power of sacrifice. It's sacrificial death on behalf of others, which I define as the ultimate definition of communion. So if I'm going to define communion for you, I'm going to define it in sacrificial death. That's how Jesus would ultimately define it. Every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was a picture of true communion. Every single animal sacrifice. All the way to the garden when Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed and hiding behind a fig leaf. They, were, they put their own false temporary sacrifice. It wasn't even a sacrifice. They put a false temporary covering that was going to fade away. And instead, God came. And yes, there were consequences of eating from the wrong tree. But what did he do? He made a sacrifice and covered them with animal skins because he loved them. So every animal sacrifice is a picture of true communion. If you really study out why there were animal sacrifices, it was always because life was in the blood. It's blood for blood. Life is in the blood and it's given for the life of another. Blood for blood, life for life, death for life. That's the case of Jesus. It was his death that would ultimately bring life for us. Every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is a type and shadow of Jesus giving his life, and in turn, us giving ours likewise. Jesus set the example and the model for us to follow in the giving of his life on the cross. And even in the animal sacrifices, the Bible tells us that Israel were partakers of the altar. Now, many people don't understand that, but if you look at sacrifice, God always actually had a portion and a component that was for the people. Whatever wasn't consumed by fire, which was to the Lord, the the priests and the people would eat. And so there was always an intimate sharing, a sacrificial sharing of a communion, even in the Old Testament sacrifices. I call it shared sacrifices. And we have to have shared sacrifices here together. So many of you have been with me for 10, 15 years. Histories of prophetic words and weeping at the altar and overcoming hardships and moral failures and difficulties and struggles and trials and lost jobs. I can look across this congregation now and see hundreds of people where we've wept and we've cried and I've watched you manifest and shake or get delivered or set free or prophecy. Shared sacrifices where I've watched the consuming fire of God consume you while I get to partake of the benefit of it. 
Do you see how that works today? We're not actually sacrificing real animals. We're just sacrificing animal natures. So when people come in here, we get to celebrate when people get saved and born again and you let go of the past and the drugs and the addiction and the dysfunction and the broken strings of marriages and relationships and secret sins and hidden failures and we love you just the same. We all share in the sacrifice, but there must be shared sacrifices. It's why we have to be present. It's why we need altar calls. It's why we need conferences and prophetic ministries and supernormal natural nights. That's why on Wednesday night, it's so powerful because when you watch other people get transformed, you're celebrating watching new believers or first timers or people that are desperate and broken get prophetic words from heaven and their lives rock because it actually benefits you. God consumes them with his fire and you get the benefit of a changed life. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? This is, this is true communion. This is true communion. God has always been into making sacrifices and sharing meals with his people. There was only one person called to become a living sacrifice. There was only one human sacrifice by design from God. His name's Jesus. And that sacrifice was set up a proper example for all of us to now become living sacrifices to one another. So true communion, eating, drinking, and breaking bread is really the breaking of ourselves, Jesus breaking his life and giving himself. What did he say? Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. Hundreds of disciples walked away because they didn't understand. What's he talking about? This is like, in their mind, it almost sounded occultish, like satanic ritual. Drink blood, eat flesh. But Jesus was talking about literally communing with what he was giving away in himself. So eating and drinking from a biblical standpoint has been instituted all the way in the beginning. God's been doing communion since the garden. In Exodus 24, 11, God took the 70 elders up the mountain. He told Moses, take the 70 elders up the mountain. I want to show you this last part. They saw God and they ate and drank together. Or another way that you could say it is they ate and drank and saw God. It wasn't just Moses that, and, and uh, uh it wasn't just Moses and Aaron that went up the, or not Aaron, but, uh, oh gosh. It wasn't just Moses that went up the mountain, but it was him with the 70. And they would sit and they would eat and they would drink in the presence of God on the mountain. Mark 2.16, Jesus early in his ministry shows up eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Def- literally demonstrating what real communion was right off the bat. Luke seven thirty six, Jesus hung out and ate with the Pharisee at the Pharisee's house. So he ate and drank with all kinds of people. Why? Because without the eating and drinking, there would be no giving and understanding of who he really was. There's no real communion without the eating and drinking. You understand this? So he shows up on the scene and he's like, Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees. Matthew 22, 4, we get the whole invitation to the wedding feast. And in Matthew 22, 4, he's like, send the people out and tell them dinner's ready. Dinner bell. Ding, 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 ding. There's a wedding feast. Come and eat. The table has been set. The food is prepared. The whole invitation is to a communion meal. 
Yes, it's a wedding, but come to the feast. Does everybody see this? The whole invitation to the world is defined as a meal. Come to the dinner. Then in Mark 14 and Luke 22, we get the Last Supper, which was Jesus is the Passover lamb. At the Last Supper, before his death, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread with his adver- literally one of his disciples who was actually full of Satan and an adversary, Judas. So he'd sit and eat with his enemy. He'd sit and eat with Pharisees. He'd sit and eat with the lost. And at the Last Supper, he would say, take and eat. As often as you do this, what was he doing? He was having a meal. He was having a supper, which came directly from the Passover. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse eight, therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's the new bread? Sincerity and truth. The new bread is honesty with one another. This is my issue. I'm gonna say it just like I'm thinking it, and I love you, I'm not, I'm sorry I sound so intense, I sound intense to myself. But listen to me, I'm passionate about this topic. People want to come in here and down the juice and eat the bread and go treat their wife like crap. You want to come and have a moment of an encounter in the presence of God that makes you feel good while people are sick and dying and you're treating one another like garbage. No sincerity and no truth. And I'm not saying we should throw it all away. I'm just saying we need to rethink why we do what we do and understand the scriptures. This is why people are sick among you. They're not sick because they didn't confess all their sins. They're sick because they were treated as less than and despised and disregarded. And we can't do this as a church anymore. If you want to have nice personal encounters and communion, do it privately. If you're going to come in here and we're going to set up the table, then we should really lay hands on one another and pray for the sick and say, how are you? What we really need is coming to the table and breaking bread. What we really need is people opening their homes and sharing their lives and literally giving themselves as flesh for one another to eat. And that's the hard part. We're busy. We have kids. We got jobs. And people aren't making the sacrifices because we're saying it's just like when they were invited to the feast. It's like, Go out to the highways and byways and tell them, come to the dinner, wedding bells, wedding feast. And they're like, but hang on a second. I got to go first, put my animals away, which I live in that reality. (laughs) But I got to go first, feed the chickens. I live in that reality too. But wait, I got to put the kids to bed by 8.30. I live in that reality. I get it. This is the tension. The tension is the sacrifice in the midst of busy lives. The tension is making the sacrifice when it hurts and it's not comfortable. The tension's opening our homes because who knows what crazy person's going to come over tonight. <laughs> Put all your jewels away, honey. <laughs> the scripture says, keep the feast with unleavened bread. 
What does that mean? It means get sincerity and truth and get a baptism of honesty. This is the power of communion. Is that if communion's being done right, you actually can't hide because you get in the trenches and you love one another and you build trust. Now I'm sincere and I'm honest with you because I can hide here. I mean, I don't hide very well because I speak, but you, you can come here and hide easy. You can come get your Sunday morning fix and get come Wednesdays and get your communion fix and you can do all these things and still hide. Do you understand? But you can't hide in relationships. In John 21, we get breakfast by the sea. Jesus resurrects. He appears to the disciples. Peter's still jaded. He's still hurt. He hadn't been restored yet. He's still got wounds. He needs inner healing. Peter needs inner healing. Because what does he say in John 20? He's like, well, I'm going fishing. He's already seen Jesus. Take me back to the, I'm going back to my old life. I'm going back to what I've always known. I'm going fishing. So what do they do? So Peter and the disciples go fishing all night at post-resurrection, post-seeing Jesus. And they fish all night and catch nothing. And then Jesus, you know, somewhat sarcastic, like, hey, y'all caught anything? (laughs) And what's Jesus doing when he shouts out to him from the shore? He's cooking a meal. It's called breakfast by the sea. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, breakfast by the sea. Morning fishing, but doesn't it just sound so good? And see, Jesus already had fish on the grill while they were fishing. Did you know that? And so they, he's like, cast your net to the other side. And they didn't realize it was Jesus. And so they cast their net to the other side. Their nets bust at the seams. They drag the fish to the shore. And then Jesus says, bring some of those fish that you just caught. I'm gonna throw it on with the fish I've already got and let's have breakfast. Communion. This is the pattern of real communion. Now, I'm not out to just throw away all your nice experiences that make you feel good of your cracker and your cup. Maybe I am. I just want you to rethink it. Because we'll take, we're going to receive communion together as a fit, just to prove my point on Wednesday night but we're going to do it different. We're going to face each other. We're going to lay hands on each other. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to discern the body. It's not, we're not going to make this about us. How about the road to Emmaus? The two disciples are, are discouraged, downcast. Jesus shows up. I love this story. He's like, what's happening, bro? And the guys are like, don't you know, Bro. There's like, don't you know? what? Have you been living under a rock? This is the two disciples on the road. Who are you? Do you not know what just happened? And Jesus literally walks and talks with them, expounding on the scriptures. They still, their eyes aren't open. They still don't know it's him. But while he's talking to them, their hearts are burning on fire. And look at in Luke 24, verse 30. Let's pull that up. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And look at the next verse, verse 31. Then their eyes were open and they knew him. So their eyes weren't opened until what? The bread was broken. Just to prove the point, he's already died on the cross and resurrected. This is the power of breaking bread at the table. 
This is the, the example that Jesus set of what real communion really looks like. Are you guys getting fired up at all right now? If you're mad, just forgive me. This is my core issue. We want one-on-one, but we don't want to make the sacrifice with one another. Let's take a closer look at the history of communion and what I actually believe the Father's original intent was. The greatest picture of communion as we know it comes from the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper during Passover just for the crucifixion. We all know this, right? We should all know this. That the, the picture that we see of communion ultimately was Jesus's demonstration at the Last Supper, which by the way, was a supper. And I get it. You may read that all there was was bread and wine. I don't believe that. I believe there was a spread. I believe it was a meal. And I believe it was, a, it was the Passover meal. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. I mean, just look at Passover. We'll talk maybe more about it when we get closer to Passover. The whole picture of Passover was communion. It was the whole picture of, of the lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your heart so that the spirit of death, and I'm not, talking, I'm not just talking about physical death, I'm talking about spiritual eternal life is now in the blood of our hearts. So post-resurrection and Pentecost, here's what we find. I'm gonna show you the scriptures as I have pulled them out. Acts 2.42, this is right after Pentecost. They continued, this is the disciples and the apostles. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So post-Pentecost, post-resurrection, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, doctrine is so important in communion. It's so important. And I'm gonna say to you, I have a unique doctrinal belief system that I have studied for 30 years with massive study and accountability with even elders and leaders and board of directors in this church that I believe. But I can tell you right now, the seven churches in a mile from this church don't believe it all the same. 35,000 denominations, all different types of doctrine, Find your speed, find your language, find the truth that you love and believe. And if this is it, stick with it. I believe women can be in ministry. I believe that there's five-fold offices today. I believe the power of God can be manifested through every one of us. I believe in seers and prophets. I believe in, in that there are apostles today. That's what I, how I read it, genuinely what I believe. We want pastors and evangelists and teachers, but not prophets and apostles. And I don't think one's greater than the other. I think they're all equal. How's that? Amen. Thank you. Look, the beauty of the diversity of the kingdom is everybody has a unique language and mindset and the body's different. That's the beauty of it. Let's not be divided over it. It's not heresy. You may not agree with me, but that doesn't mean it's heresy. So we need to, that's the power of, of real communion is now we can have authentic conversations instead of Facebook conversations. Sorry. Acts 4.32 the multitude of those who believed were one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he had possessed was his own. They had all things in common. So what does it mean to have all things in common? The only way, I, look, we are so different. 
let's just, let me make a statement to most of you. So many of us have nothing in common. Can I get an amen? I mean, the way some of y'all eat your tacos, where you go for tacos, the best taco restaurant. I'm not giving away my secret. But this is how, this is the beauty of the Lord, is the Lord takes people that are, that don't have things in common and makes the most important thing in common because it's not about foods and music styles and lifestyles. It's about true unity in the spirit. That's what makes it beautiful is that we are so different, my wife and I, so extremely night and day opposite. And yet God has such a sense of humor to make us one. And that when she says, I will never marry somebody who's been married, done drugs, or been in prison, or that's a pastor, look what God did. (laughs) Acts 20, verse 7. Now, this whole story in Acts 20 is amazing. So Paul is, is basically teaching in a house And he goes long. He goes like four hours long. And then a little boy, while he's teaching, falls out the window and dies. Third third story, dies. I'm paraphrasing the story. Paul literally runs down, throws himself on him. The boy's life comes back. He brings him up. And then he says, this is awesome. I'm preaching till sunrise. That's my kind of home group. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together, they, to do what? What? So they came together to break bread. And Paul starts preaching till midnight. The boy falls out of the window, dies. Acts verse 20, verse 11, he raises the guy up. Now, when he had come up, what did he do? He broke bread and ate. Nothing was stopping him from breaking bread and eating together. And talked a long while, even until daybreak. Until roughly 250 AD, we get what was called love feasts or agape feasts, a communal meal shared among Christians, often in public with a purpose. The love feast seeks to strengthen the bonds and the spirit of harmony, goodwill, and congeniality, as well as to forgive past disputes and instead love one another. That's straight from Wikipedia. Look it up. Look it up. Agape feast, love feast. You didn't have, it wasn't until the, the late part of the first century and the second century that you had traditional communion as we know it. The original design was what I just showed you. And what transpired from everything I just read was what was called love feasts or agape feasts. It's funny, I, taught, I asked my wife, you know what a love feast is? She goes, man, it just sounds like a, big sexual party to me. She didn't know what it was. Most people don't know what it is. Hip, the hippie movement. That's right, love feast. <laughs> Instead of communion in a worship service, what you had was love feasts, 
breaking bread. You had the, the celebration of the Last Supper in a love feast until about 250 AD. So for 250 years after Christ's death, you didn't have any Eucharist. Look it up. It wasn't until the early church decided to make it a central part or a central theme of the normal worship service. What, instead, what you had was disciples going home to home, breaking bread, and you had a public love feast. So now, in a short time, I'm going to help you to understand the love feast. Written in 55 AD, Paul pens a letter to the first Corinthian church. His first letter to the Corinthian church. Did I say the first Corinthian church? That's funny. <laughs> to the Corinthian church. Now follow me. I'm going to teach you guys something you may not have known today. I want you to see the context and the context of these scriptures I'm about to read to you. Let's start out with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 55 AD is the first talk that we get of the Lord's Supper and the remembrance of the Lord's Supper in the context of a love feast. Now, in giving these instructions, I'm not praising you, since when you come together, you're actually coming together for the worse, not for the better. First of all, when you come together as a church. So notice this, the writing. When you come together as a church. If you look up this word church, it's the word ecclesia. That's a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a public place. That's the word ecclesia. So he says, when you come together, it's like, I'm, you guys are doing a terrible job. I'm giving you no praise when you come together. When you come together I hear that there's divisions among you. What's a division? The Greek word for division is the schism. How many of you know what a schism is? A schism is a rent, a split, a gap. It's dissension. It's where you get the word schizophrenic. It's split-minded. And the church was acting schizophrenic in the public eye. It went from home to home, breaking bread, remembering what Jesus did, giving of themselves, communion, simplicity and gladness in their homes, joy, laughter. If these home groups aren't about simplicity and glad, these aren't doctrinal debate home groups. This is, this is like the Holy Spirit. We're calling it house fire for a reason. We need the power of God to be demonstrated. Get filled with the Spirit so you can fill other people with the Spirit. Because until you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're gonna lean on your intellect. Look at Apollos. We need, we need a baptism of fire in our life. We need the more that God has for us. And that's what's gonna happen in our, in our homes. So he says, when you get together, there's divisions among you. There's schisms, dissension. But let me tell you what causes a schism. Here's what causes schism. Caused by strong opposition or differences in opinions and belief. For example, what I'm teaching today, if 75 of you manifested and got mad at me and I somehow got offended, please don't. We could have a schism in this church, right? So either people leave or they stay and become toxic. That's a schism. It's where you get church splits. It's where you get double-minded people. It's where you get people coming for years and years and years, years and years, not agreeing with a massive amount of things that are happening here, but choosing to stay for whatever reason, and then one day manifesting and saying, everything that you're doing is wrong, and then leaving. That's a schism. So Paul says, when you come together, there's divisions among you. 
you got schisms. Now I'm gonna tell you where the schisms are coming from, not just in opposition, in opinions and belief. But look at this, verse 19. There must also be factions among you and those who are, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. What's a faction? The Greek word for faction is a heresy. It's a body of men following their own tenets, leading to dissensions of their own opinions or aims or motives. People following their own desires, their own will, and teaching things that are according to their heart, not God's heart. Like even in this, I don't wanna be a heretic. I just want real authentic communion. That doesn't mean we can't do a cup and a, and a, and a cup of juice together in a worship service. But what it does mean is there must be more. It's like we want these little quick moments. Let's do a quick thing. We're going to be united if we do this little cup. No, we're going to be united when I cut myself open for you in the spirit and I give my life to you. When I show up at your mom's funeral, when I, everything kept me from it. When you came and you showed up and you served and you gave and you gave the cup of water to the least. When you made the sacrifice as much as you did to the least, you did to me. And so Paul's saying that, look, there's people coming that have factions because they want to be approved. Isn't this the spirit of the age today? People wanting approval, ministers wanting approval, YouTube influencers, YouTube, social media, all the things. It's like people want approval. And your search for approval and significance will leave you empty if you don't find it in Christ. This word approved is the word dokimos. It means to be properly approved. It's men of honor who only put full legal weight and money into curriculum. But these people were looking for approval and recognition. That's what it says, that they may be recognized among you. It means that you need to know who I am. This is, I'm just gonna break it down for you in the most simplest way that I can. Have you ever been a part of a religious church system where every time the pastor shows up, with his entourage, he's the man of God with bodyguards and he gets the best seat at the table and gets to go first and eat first. And he's the one that is always recognized and celebrated as the mighty man of God. You've never been a part of that? (laughs) Well, I have. And I don't want to be treated like that. Now, if I have three screaming little kids that I'm about to speak, move out of the way. I'm moving to the front of the line. But it's not about the fact that I need to be reckoned. I don't need bodyguards. I just need to love really well and be of the people and let me just love you well. Don't put me on a pedestal. Keep your eyes on Christ. I'll point you in the right direction. All right? Thank you. But this is the situation You had a public demonstration where the men of God were showing up, the church is divided, there's factions and schisms, and there's heresies and oppositions, and here comes the the leaders that say, give me the best table, the best food, and I'm gonna eat first because I need to be reckoned. Do you know who I am? I mean, you need to know who I am. Move out the way, I'm the man of God. There's gag in my mouth. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. When you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? It is. The answer is yes, it is. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one's hungry and another's drunk. So there was alcohol. Let's just let you know that right now. It's a public love feast. 
This is an agape feast designed to demonstrate the love of Christ to the masses. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper with real wine, real food. And what the people were doing is when they showed up is the leaders of the church were going first. This is what it says right here. He takes his own supper ahead of others. One's hungry and another's drunk. He's like, what? Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? You wanna do this in public? Go home. Go do this in private. This is not that. It's supposed to be a proper public demonstration of the giving of yourself in a love feast to one another as the Lord's Supper. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? The answer is yes. That's what they were doing. Because here came the outcasts, the broken, the people not like you, the lost, the sinners, the transients, you name it, the drug addicts, all the people. And when they come in, this is the problem with religions, they feel less than, but not at Rock City. The most outcast should be able to walk in here and feel safe no matter what. The worst of the worst, affairs, drugs, prison, I don't care, wealthy, poor, sad, whoever it is should be able to walk in and feel the presence and the love of God. It's about accept, people long for acceptance. And Jesus accepted everyone. So what do you have houses to eat or drink in or you despise the church of God and those who have nothing? What am I to say to you? I'm gonna paraphrase this for you. Shall I say, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? No, y'all are jacked up. That's how I read that. To that church, not y'all, to that church. Eating and drinking ahead of others this meeting wasn't about them. It was about the law. So let's keep reading. Verse 23, I received. He says, now look at the example of Christ. Here's what he's saying. Look at the example of Christ. For I received from the Lord that which he says, you got your public love feast. It's a mess. Now watch what Christ did. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you on the same night which Jesus was betrayed. The same night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what in remembrance? The meal, the supper, the bread, the people, the giving, the life, giving of yourself to one another. So off, and then I'll just jump down for the sake of time. He talks about proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes as often as you eat and drink. This is why we're doing house fires. This is why we have home groups now. It's not been something that I have been overly excited about in the past because I struggled with the whole dynamics of it. I was never raised in home groups, but other people were and their lives were changed. What I know is we need real communion in this house to go where we're gonna go. I need y'all to get unified and to get into relationship with one another. It's gotta happen. It has to happen or we won't be able to sustain what's coming for us. I can't speak for any other church or any other move. What I know is God's on the move here and he's ordained something and he's pouring out his spirit. And what I know is I, we desperately need one another in the trenches on another level of real breaking bread. If we don't get real communion of baptism of honesty and sincerity and truth in this house, when the fire and the glory of God comes, we will all die. So we want revival, revival, revival. Okay, De revival while we're all, same thing with communion. I down the cup, eat the cracker while I treat my wife bad. Or I don't like you, so I won't spend time with you. So I'm actually divided with you, but boy, did I have a good moment at the altar. 
Now watch this, verse 27. Whoever eats this bread, look at the context. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? That's the question that you should be asking yourself. What does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner and to be guilty of the, of the body and the blood of the Lord? What does that mean? The context is you want recognition, you're eating first, you're getting drunk, you want to be recognized, you're the man of God, and other people are being left out and being left sick. Look at verse 28. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat and drink. So examine yourself. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right? Like, check your heart motives. This is about the heart. For he who eats and drinks in unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What does that mean? It means I need to discern you. It means, man, I really have checked my heart. I'm gonna eat and drink, but you're hurting. You're hurting. So am I gonna put myself first or I'm gonna put you first, right? And that's why Paul goes to say, this is why so many people are sick among you because you're not actually discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, this reason many are sick among you and fallen asleep. If we judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So it's about our heart motives and checking our heart and making sure that we're discerning the body properly. What does it mean to discern the body properly? It means we give our lives from a pure motive. It means that God doesn't want me to make it about me. He wants me to make it about you. And in turn, if I make it about you, he makes it about me. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, this is the whole context. You need to wait. Wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And I'll set the rest in order when I come. And so to examine ourselves is to test, prove, and scrutinize ourselves, to make sure that we're genuine and authentic. People are sick because of neglect and misrepresentation. There's people manifesting against Rock City right now. Fringe people. People that got hurt or never converted or don't like something that happened over the years or the doctrine or didn't like you, for goodness sakes. People that say, oh, I love you, pastor. You've been so nice. But those people at Rock City Church, I'm like, where are you? It's, this, is the, this is the body. The, the key is that we discern for the body one another or we're guilty of putting him on the cross. If I, if I see you erroneously and treat you erroneously, I'm guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. Again, I'm not discerning, I'm guilty. Yeah, I was guilty once, but I don't wanna keep being guilty. I wanna love you properly, don't you? The answer to everything is wait for one another. True communion is waiting for one another. It's giving preference to one another. It's killing pride and arrogance. It's killing the desire for recognition and approval from others. It's killing selfish ambition and learning to walk in perfect love. It's allowing ourselves to become a living sacrifice. And for another time, I'll talk with you about people that attended love love feasts that were counterfeits. Because people are gonna show up at home groups that are counterfeit. People are gonna show up here that are counterfeit. Jesus told us to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus, or Paul told the church at Ephesus, beware, because within your church, people are gonna rise up as wolves to devour the sheep. That's why this culture must get unified. We gotta get rid of the cracks in this culture. We can't let weird false prophets show up and go to people's houses and laying hands and actually teaching doctrines of demons. We can't let ourselves get divided over, the th- over minors. 
We can't let weird things happen that pull people away. But the only way to do it is to not chase rabbits, but to love people and build a culture that's unified. And that's what true communion does is it unifies us and it's going to take a sacrifice. Another time we'll talk about spots in the love feast that Jude talked about. But for today, I actually wrote down a few questions I want you to think about. Dave, come up here, please. What do we do with traditional communion? We're going to keep doing it. But we're going to change our heart attitudes, right? You understand? I don't want to just throw it out. I just am saying, like, there's more. How do we ensure... This is a question I wrote down. How do we ensure true communion as Christ demonstrated and intended takes place? Well, the onus is on me. The onus is on me to keep showing up and giving of my life. The onus is on you. Like, how can you ensure our house fires home groups demonstrates true communion as intended? That when we show up, we come with, with simplicity and gladness and love. Bring a dish, bake a meal. Break some bread, bless it, pray and laugh, joy. Talk about some, you know, because you're going to talk about the messages that I preach on Sunday just as conversation starters. What'd you think about what Pastor David said or that guest speaker said? How did that impact your life? What do you need? Let's pray. How can we help you? And then I wrote down, do you feel alone without someone giving themselves to you in true communion? This is the thing I hear a lot about this church is that I feel alone. I don't feel connected and I don't know how to fix it. I hope that the presence of God and encounters would bring unity, but there's also needs more. And it can't just be services on a Wednesday and a Sunday. And you know what I know is if I need a spiritual father, I become one to someone else. If I need somebody to invest in my life, then I become that first to somebody else. If I sit around in a pity party and wait for somebody to give it to me, it doesn't come. But when I make the sacrifice and give it to somebody else, it comes. 